Many years ago, there was a major fire on the aircraft carrier I was stationed on. It took uh, 23 hours to extinguish the last of it, but at its high point, uh, the fire got into some spaces uh, that we couldn't see. It was uh, it got in parts of the ship that there were no doors. It's kind of like in your house, uh, just to freak you out a little bit. A fire can get into your walls and you can't see it, but you, uh, if you're quiet enough, you can listen and you can hear. Uh, what's going on, or you can touch the wall, you can feel the warmth, you can feel the heat. And at one point, I and a group of other sailors, we were geared up with all of our oxygen masks. I was a nozzle man. Uh, I was leading a team through this maze of passageways as we were working our way deeper into the ship until we ultimately reached a dead end. And we reached this bulkhead, this steel wall, and uh, we got quiet. On the other side, you could kind of hear the hum of what was going on behind it. You could feel the warmth of, 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 the, of the heat, uh, but we couldn't figure out how to get to it. Uh, we kind of worked away. We tried to go up and around and try and figure out how do we get there, uh, we, and we couldn't figure out, but we knew we needed to get to it. Uh, the problem was we were working in near pitch black we were with only flashlights. A few emergency lights were working, uh, a lot of noise. Uh, we started trying to figure out, well, maybe we, we could cut through it, but it would take too long to get a, get a cutting torch there, and the steel was so thick it would take forever. Uh, so we spread out to try and find a way in, and uh, we finally did. We found an access hatch that was about 36 inches in diameter, uh, but it had about 100 bolts holding it on. And so somebody, somehow somebody found a socket wrench, and we took turns just trying to get the bolts off as fast as we could. And then this other guy and I, we got a hold of the steel plate, and we pulled it off. And as soon as we got it off, you could just feel the rush of the heat, and we could hear the fire. And uh, we uh, you know, kind of looked in, and we could see it was a big open space. It was several feet wide and several feet tall. And uh, you know, we saw a lot of smoke, but we couldn't see the fire. There was a bend, and you know, we looked in, and you couldn't see the fire. It was around uh, the bend. And uh, so there was an officer with us. And of course, not surprised, the officers stepped back and looked at the rest of us that were not officers, and the look was, who's going first? And so uh, I'm a yellow-red temperament, so I'm like, I'll go. You know, like, I'm 19, what can possibly go wrong, right? So uh, I volunteer, and it was narrow enough, they actually had to kind of lift my legs up and kind of feed me through this hole. I get on inside, and then they give me the nozzle, and they start feeding me the hose, and then I go around the bend, and I'm finally able to see the fire and see the trouble spot. And in about five or ten minutes, I was actually able to subdue the fire in that area and get that taken care of. I was getting a little claustrophobic. It was a little scary in there. And so, like, I hustled back to the hole, and they drug me through. And then we had two guys. They stayed there in case that thing reignited. Then uh, my team and I, we joined some other teams and just kept working our way through the ship. Uh, the good news is that we got the fire out. There was no deaths, and it was only like $25, $30 million in damage. So no big deal, just taxpayer dollars. So, uh, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, as I was just working through, uh, preparing through this morning, I, this morning I was part of an event and doing some reading, and just kind of all that kind of came together. And I was thinking about this morning and, and the series and even what we're doing as a church. And I was what came to mind is that I feel like often, at least for me, this is kind of the picture of the dynamic between God and I. Uh, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm alone in this, but I, but I feel like that I've got this internal drive that I've had, like from as far back as I can remember, this internal drive 
to find him and like almost a sense of urgency of wanting to find God and to, to figure him out and, and to see him and experience him. And there's been so many times in my life and, and even just as, as a Christian where I can sense his presence. I, I, I could, sometimes it's like I can feel the heat, so to speak. It's, it's like I feel like though at times I'm working my way through this maze of passageways to try and find him. And just when I think I'm, I'm, I'm so close, I experience a wall. And it's, like I, I can, it's like, almost like I can hear him on the other side. And it's like I sense him there. And I can perceive the warmth and the activity. But, I, but sometimes it just feels like I, I can't seem to get to him. And I feel like to some extent like, that we can all experience that, where God just feels just out of reach. And, I, and I'm sharing this with you because as I kind of work that through, I recognize that one of the things that the New Testament writers tell us, and not even just the New Testament writers, but, but there's definitely, as long as we're living on this earth, there is going to be that tension of, the, of that hunger for God and that pursuit and that reaching for God. And sometimes at times feeling like, like he's just out of reach or he's like, he's just, he's so close. And I'm sharing with this, because you, this, with sharing this to you because I, I wanted to make sure that you understand the motive and the heart uh, behind me because it gives context to everything that I say from the front or when I'm engaging you uh, one-on-one. I want you to understand the heart of what I do, what I do, and why we exist as a community. Is uh, The heart of it is that we, we don't want to get a bunch of people to b- just believe all the same stuff. At the heart of it is that we, it isn't that we want to give believe people, you know, get them all thinking exactly the same way. I mean, it's true there are, are some beliefs and some truths that if they're based on, on God and God's grace and God's truth, then yes, we, we want to have some commonality in that. But I'm sharing this because at the heart of this is because uh, the, the reason why this community exists, the reason why we do a series like this one, the heart of it is, is that individually, I want us to know God. Like individually, for each of you individually and for us collectively, to know God. Because at the core of it, that's, that's ultimately what we want. That's ultimately, it's because the deep desire of, of, of my heart, again, for you and for me, is that individually and collectively that we would know and experience God. In fact, Jesus prayed. He once prayed about this. In one of his prayers, it's recorded for us by one of his closest followers, John. And so Jesus, he's actually praying out loud. So the disciples are here, able to hear it. And he says this, he's praying to God. And he says this, he says, now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, that they would know you. And the idea isn't like that I know this barista at Starbucks. It's like, it's somebody who's been married 30 years to somebody that like, I know my wife and like, she knows me. It's like an intimate knowing. And I believe from a young age that we're all on this same search, that there's something deep within us that's on this search for God, because our whole identity and our existence is dependent, it's defined and identified by whether or not there is a God. And if we conclude that there is a God, our identity, our purpose, and our existence is defined and determined by the character of that God. So, and the search is nothing new. I mean, we know this from ancient and modern history, people searching for the meaning of life. And as for me, I'm convinced, as many of you are, not all of you, but most of you are, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that I believe in the God of Jesus, and that the deep desire of my heart is to find him and to know him more. 
more intimately. And, and that's why I, what I just desperately want for each and every one of you and, and for the people in this city and beyond. I mean, God, God once said to a group of people like us, he said it through a prophet, Jeremiah, God said, you will seek me and you will find me. Well, when God? When will I find you? When you seek me with all your heart. And the, the reason why I'm sharing this with you this morning is because the, the pursuit and the discovery of God is a lifelong process. And for most of us, it's, 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 it, and it's important to understand that God's not playing games. God's not playing games. It's, it's, it's this, but it's that this pursuit, it teaches us about Him. It helps us discover Him a little at a time to know Him better and to have that knowing impact our lives and our relationships. It's like for those of you that you're in school or you, those of you with advanced degrees or you're like at the pinnacle of your career, like it just doesn't happen overnight. Like you learn in stages. That's a human, human experience. We have a pace in which we can absorb just so much at a time. And that over time, we continue to experience this and then we grow in our understanding, which impacts our day-to-day -day experience and what we can accomplish. And every single week here, it's not just about learning data. Every week is about learning a little bit more about God from God's Word, learning about His character and His desire for our lives, and then apply that through the week and in the process to experience Him and to know Him better. And in that process to represent Him in such a way that it turns people's attention not to us, but to Him. So we've been doing this series called Christian Confusion because, as we've said, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. But again, we're, we're talking about this primarily uh, because, not because want, it's about us all like being right and believing the right things and being better than everyone else. Rather, it's that Jesus came to show us God, the one that he invited us to refer to and call a Heavenly Father, to help us to know him, uh, to know him that he loves us and that he came to reconcile us to him. And as a heads up, next week we're going to go deep. We're going to address something that's been, it's been kind of a cliche thing that's been said for a long time. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Next week we're going to talk, we're going to dig into does the great, how does the grace of God and the truth and the holiness of God, like how does that all fit together? Can you possibly do both? So we're going to learn something huge next week. But what we're talking about today, the idea is, the promise is that we will find God if we pursue Him with our whole heart. And Jesus made it clear that to follow Him to follow Jesus will not only lead us to God, but it would somehow allow us to play a role in bringing God's kingdom to earth. And it's, it's just language to describe that, that God would use us somehow to bring an existence where compassion and love and justice rule the day. But part of the problem is we've been talking about is this term Christian. We've talked about the fact that Jesus never referred to his followers as Christians. And unfortunately, we've discovered that much of the Western world has settled for the term Christian. Well, why? Because it's just so much easier. Because you can make Christian be anything you want it to be. Because it's not defined in the scriptures. It's only used three times. And it's by outsiders describing those that follow Jesus. But Jesus actually gave his disciples that name, that brand, disciple. And they took that brand so seriously. We know. We know it because when you visit Rome today... If you visit Rome, just about every single building you can find has a cross on it, or multiple crosses. The emperor's gate, the slave gate, the Roman Colosseum, everywhere you go in the city is crosses. Well, what's the big deal about that? 
Well, just think back with me for just a second. If we could go back to 64, 65 AD, Nero has just burned the city of Rome. He needs a scapegoat to blame the burning of the city on. So he decides to blame this Jewish knockoff cult of Judaism uh, called the Christians. So he announces that the Christians burned the city of Rome. He has his henchmen go all throughout the city. They're arresting, they're dragging Christians in, and then he has what's called Nero's Circus, which was essentially an arena, and he begins to burn Christians alive as human torches. He feeds Christians the lions and makes sport of them. And so imagine for a moment if we could go back to 64, 65 AD, and uh, all this is going on, if we were to go outside the city and visit a farm, and behind the farmhouse is a barn, and if we were to go into the barn and find kind of hidden back in the hay, three or four different fa- Christian families that have fled the city of Rome, they know they'll never go back to the city, they've seen their friends and family, vi- family members violently hauled off, they'll never be seen again, they've lost everything that they have, and there's a bounty on their heads, in fact, people will bring them in just to make money, and they'll bring them in to be burned to death or fed to the lions. And if we were to sit down with these scared, terrified families, their children are crying, the men and the women are terrified, and we were to say to them, did you, did you know that one day, did you know that one day the city of Rome will be adorned with crosses everywhere? If we were to tell them crosses will be affixed to buildings and walls and in paintings and artwork and highways and signs, and these these crosses will not represent Rome, these crosses will not represent crucifixion, but they will represent one single crucifixion of the Jewish carpenter, the very man that you worship, Jesus Christ, your Lord. And in, in, in this movement, this movement that you're a part of is going to be so huge that, and it's going to be internationally known that one day... This very, uh, very city that you fled from is going to become the epicenter, the epicenter of, the per- it's the, of persecution that it is today. One day, there's going to be more crosses representing your Lord, your Savior, Jesus, than in any other city of the world. One day, the Colosseum, where your friends and your family members are being killed and tortured, these temples in the city that you fled, they're going to be nothing more than tourist attractions. The day will come when instead of an arena, there will be a cathedral built in the memory of Peter, the fisherman, the leader of the movement that you call the way, that one day will become known as Christianity. Can you imagine? And they would look at you like you were mad. They would say, no, Rome, Rome is forever. I mean, yes, we believe in Jesus. We believe He's the risen Savior. But this movement, our movement is small. There's like several dozen of us. There's, there's no way in the world that Rome will ever turn and surrender to anything, especially not to this fledgling movement that we call the way. And yet 300 years later, which historically speaking is not a long time, 300 years later, there are crosses everywhere. How did that happen? See, we should want to know that. It's important. How did that happen? Because there's implications for us today. And it happened because Jesus' followers would not simply be Christians. It happened because followers of Jesus embraced and submitted to His message. And they took seriously the labels and the brands that He gave them. And over time, it's historical. The fact that they changed the world. So today, because I want all of us 
to know the God of Jesus and to be a part of what he is doing. And because I want us to make a lasting difference in this world, I, I want to read to you a speech that Jesus gave. It's from Matthew chapter 5. And this was a speech that got it all going. This was early on in Jesus' ministry. Many of you, you've heard these words before, but I want to put, pitch it in a different context. In the context, hundreds, maybe thousands of people have gathered, and Jesus realized this is the moment for me to lay the groundwork for this movement. This is the moment for me to lay the groundwork uh, for this thing that would become this, the church, the foundation. And I'm going, to introduce, uh, to, I'm going to introduce to these people this value system, this worldview, the habits and the behaviors that are going to turn the world upside down. And here's where it all began. It's Matthew 5 verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, which is why we call it Sermon on the Mount, and he sat down. His disciples, because that's what he called his followers, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And now I'm going to give you the revolutionary, world-changing, shut the Roman power, empire speech that Jesus gave. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It gets stronger. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. It's like, what? Blessed are the righteous, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's like, Jesus, seriously? Do you know what's going on? Meek? Do you, do you know anything about Rome? No, the powerful inherit the earth. I mean, not the meek. We can't even control our land. We can't control our nation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Okay, Jesus, do, do you really think we're going to be able to retake our world and our nation and the, from the brutality of Rome through peacemaking? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. No, might and strength, that's what changes the world. That's what's required. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I think the audience would have been just like this. What? Like, maybe he'll do a miracle or something because this speech isn't going anywhere. Like, what, what is this going to possibly accomplish? I mean, Jesus, you think this is going to begin something and you're casting a vision for, like, your kingdom and everything? Like, so let, let me get this right, Jesus. We are poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people waiting for a reward in heaven? Is that who we are? That's it? You think this is going anywhere? And yet 300 years later, the message of Jesus is everywhere. But at that moment, there's no way they could get their mind around this. They couldn't even process it. So Jesus decides, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you two word pictures. I'm going to give you two word pictures that will tell you who you are. You, you are these things in practical terms. You know, some of you, you've, you've heard these words hundreds of times, but, but you've missed it. So please, just pay close attention. His next phrase is this, you are the salt of the earth. If you want to be my follower, that is who 
and what you are. You are the salt of the earth. Now, everybody in Jesus' audience, they knew what salt was for them. When we think of salt, for us, it's seasoning. But for them, it was a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration, so it was a preservative. And for those of you that don't know, a preservative is simply this. A substance added to a food to prevent decomposition due to chemical change or bacterial action. Salt, salt is added to, to food to prevent decomposition. Because when there's no preservative, things decompose, things stink. So Jesus was saying to his audience then what he's saying to his audience now, and it's this. You are the preservative of the earth. You are. You. If, if, if you don't preserve, the earth rots. If you don't preserve, culture rots. If you don't preserve, things go in a very, very negative and destructive way. And again, imagine the, the world that he was speaking into. He's speaking into a world and a group of people where might made right. The biggest army. That's how right was determined. Moral and ethical arguments and issues were, de were determined by who has the longest sword, who has the greatest strength. Women had no rights. Children had fewer rights. Mercy, we can't get our mind around this. Mercy, compassion, and generosity, those were considered weakness, not strength by this culture. And the only way you can imagine is to visit some other, you, you can watch the news, but to visit some other countries where they still operate by this worldview, we, we can't fully appreciate it in the Western world, especially as Americans, because there's just so much that we assume is common human decency. It is not common human decency. It was learned. We still reflect a Judeo-Christian mindset that runs deep in our culture. It's not how Americans are. It's how we learned to be. And that we still reflect these fundamental values that Jesus taught on the other side of the world that eventually worked their way through time to the other side of the world and has transformed cultures everywhere. Because of course in 2019, women shouldn't be treated any less than a man. But there were times in this country where that was not the case, and yet we knew intuitively there was something wrong, and we worked to fix it. And intuitively, we know that one person should never have ownership of another person. There's just something wrong about that. And eventually, our national conscience caught up with that thinking and that teaching and that truth. And we believe that children are precious. But why do we believe children are precious? There are cultures all over the world, they don't see children as precious, why do we think that when someone is generous and they give of their extra to help somebody in need, why do we say that that's good instead of weak? Why do we think compassion is good instead of, a weak, of weak? Why, why do we applaud mercy? Why do we applaud the person that risked their life or their income for the sake of someone in need? Why do we say that that is good? It's not human nature. It's not common human decency. It is a reflection of a worldview that ultimately came through Jesus, the salty teachings of Jesus. And the first century disciples, they grabbed onto this and they believed this. And, and we can't fully appreciate that every single day we live in a worldview that is not self-evident. It's based on a faith system that traces its roots back to a mountainside on the other side of the world in the first century that says men and women and children, regardless of their race and language they speak, no matter what side of what border they live on, they have value that men and women and children are somehow all created in the image of God. And that's not intuitive, nor is it self-evident. 
See, we hear of slavery in other countries and how children are trafficked, and we think, how can a human treat another human that way? It's simple. They don't see the world as you do. It means the reason, that, and the reason they don't see the world the way you do is because you were taught the way you see the world. And that, this is what preserves life that is truly life. So Jesus gathers his disciples and says, by this one thing, this one thing, people will know you are my follower. How you love, how you treat, how you appreciate, how you go out of your way to care in action for one another. Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling for one another, but care and love in action. And Jesus said, if you will allow it, that kind of mindset, that kind of love, that kind of behavior is going to take hold. And it's going to impact the world and the earth. And he meant it. You are the salt. You are preservers of the earth. And not only that, he said, you're the light of the world. Now, let's just be honest. Brutally honest. We're busy. Right? Most of us, we're tired. I was reading an article yesterday talking about like in the 1800s, average amount of sleep was like nine, nine and a half hours. 20th century was like eight hours. And now it's like six. We're tired and distracted. And if we're honest, go like, I don't want to be the light of the world. I don't want to be the light of the world. I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us, if we're honest, we, we just want to be Christian and go to heaven when we die. It's like, that's all I got the strength for, God. It's like, I don't want to be salt and light. I, like, I prayed that prayer, and now I just want to find a husband or find a wife, or I just want to, you know, have a great marriage and raise a family and learn some Bible and sing some songs, and I just want to go to heaven when I die. Just as a side note, as a side note, because it connects to us. Did you know, I talked to the, the, the team this morning, I mentioned this, that, that 80% of church plants fail. Like we're just two and a half years in, we're still young. 80% of church plants fail. And one reason was observed, there was a 20-something friend of mine, part of the community, he said this, he said, in the first few years, church plants require a lot of work, and especially his peers, his age group, at first they get excited about a church plant, but then they discover it's work. And it's harder than they thought it would be. And they don't want to work that hard. At a recent class, I was in Chicago, a vocational excellence in ministry class. Here was this quote. A major difficulty in sustaining one's mission in, as far as planning a church is that others who start out with the same enthusiasm will come to lose their nerve. Mutiny and sabotage come not from enemies who oppose the initial idea, but rather from colleagues whose will is sapped by unexpected hardships along the way. Because it's challenging. Because if, if, if we're honest, and, and I get this, I get it. Most Christians, just they, just, they want to show up. They want to connect with their friends. They want to have some community and go to heaven when they die. But Jesus says, okay, I, I, I don't know who taught you that. But my followers, my disciples, you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And, and, and to that group of people gathered on that hillside that day, the world was small. Like the majority of people in, in that part of the world, like they never traveled more than 15 miles from home in their lifetime. They didn't, have, they didn't have any knowledge of North and South America. There were continents that hadn't been discovered, continents that now have churches on them. Why? Because Jesus was serious and his disciples took him serious. A town, Jesus says, a town placed on a hill. The English word in your Bible, it will have the word built. 
But the Greek word is literally placed. It was intentional. A city placed on a hill cannot be hidden. And in that part of the world, it's flat. And there's just not a lot of trees. There's mostly shrubs. And they built towns on hills. They used white limestone so they could be seen for miles and miles. The sun reflects off them. At night, they would light their oil lamps and they could be seen for miles around. And Jesus says, just like a city or a town on a hill cannot be hidden, if you're my follower, if you're my disciple, you're like an intentionally, strategically placed town. To which we go, okay, Jesus, I'm, I am in Wichita, Kansas. I am not strategically placed. Like I, I was transferred here from Texas or Seattle or California or the East Coast or Vietnam. Like I didn't even want to come to Wichita or, you know, I came here and then I lost my job and now I'm stuck in this stupid, flat, windy, pollen-filled city where half the roads are under construction year-round. I am not strategically placed. I'm, I'm just a wanderer trying to get back home. Or, you know, I, I went to college here, and I was just like going to come to college here, and, and I had a specific career that would be somewhere else, somewhere with mountains or ocean or scenic something. You know, I never intended of doing what I'm doing here, or I was born here, my dad was born here, it's just all I'm, I'm only here because it's all I've known. And Jesus would say, it may seem random to you, but you are a strategically placed light. He went on. So neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, as a city on a hill, as a, as a light placed on a stand, let your light shine before others. Now, in Western Christianity for many decades, this is how the majority of the Christian world would read this next part. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good church attendance and say, dang, he's a good Christian. They may see your religious posts on social media and go, wow, she is such a good Christian. No, Jesus says, like a city on a hill or a light that can't be hidden, a city on a hill can't be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, I, I want you to live a life of good deeds, but not in such a way that people see your good deeds and go, wow, you're awesome. I mean, they may say that. That's not the motive. No, he's saying that they should see you living the kind of good deeds that people go, who does that? Who is that generous? Who's that patient? Who's that kind? Who's, who's that honest? Who's that compassionate? Like, who does that? Like, like, I, like I got sick. I barely knew this person. And, and like, suddenly, they're, you know, they're, they start bringing me meals. Or my husband got deployed, and they just came over, and they, like, mowed my yard. Or like, they're busy people like I'm busy people. And, and even so, they're busy people and they make time to care for and invest in kids that aren't even their own. I mean, these are the kindest, most generous people that, that I know. Or I work for this guy and he's a Christian and I messed up and he called me in and I was pretty sure he was going to fire me. In fact, he probably should have. But instead, he sits me down and said, you know what? You screwed up. And you cost, you cost the company a lot of money, but you may, you may not know this, but I'm, I'm a Christian and so I believe in second chances and I'm going to give you a second chance. They walk out, go like, I, I don't know about that Christian stuff, but man, he should have fired me. I got a second chance. Who does that? Or I'm a struggling college student or I lost my job. And like these neighbors of mine, they figured out like I'm a church person, you know, figured out what was going on. They're like church people because I see them leave on Sunday morning or come back every Sunday. And, and they found out about my situation. They showed up on my doorstep with like a $100, $200 Dylan's gift card. 
to say, hey, we want to help out. Like, who does that? I didn't even ask them. There's the guy who said, he'll help me network, help me find a job. I didn't ask for that. Who does that? Jesus said, I, I, I want your good deeds to, to be so extraordinary and to stand out that, and your light to shine bright that it outshines everybody. And people go, what's up with you? And then, when it's appropriate, to help connect the dots. So they begin to give credit for your good deeds to your Heavenly Father, not you. Some of you, you're great at this, but some of you, and, and I'm not trying to be mean or hateful, and I'll be honest, with self-examination, I see this in the mirror too. That if you were to honestly and, and authentically examine and compare the deeds that you do for others compared to the deeds you do for yourself, would the evidence suggest that you're passionate about being the salt and light of Jesus? The kind that Jesus said his followers would be? Or would the evidence suggest that you're just happy to be going to heaven when you die? Jesus said, let, let me tell you who you are. Your salt. Your light. And in the first century, those followers of Jesus, they got this. They went down to the rivers and gathered children because they had been discarded because they weren't wanted or they had a defect or something going on. They were abandoned. They took them into their homes even though they already had their own kids to feed. When the plagues broke out in small towns and villages, the Christians would stay and they would nurse people that they barely knew through the difficulty of the plague and some of them lost their lives. And, and people began to ask the question, what's up with these people? And they began to notice these Jesus followers. They're not afraid... They're not afraid to die. It's like they know something that I don't about the other side. They're, they're not afraid of death. And they, they live their lives in such a way that the, the, the pagan Roman Greek community began to connect the dots. And in just a few hundred years, the world turned upside down. Not because of powering up or good preaching or good teaching or right politics, but powerful living. Men and women took seriously the admonition to be salt and light. So here's... As I wrap up, here, here's what I, I think Jesus would say to us today. That in, your, that in our somewhat chaotic, broken, crazy, 21st century world, in a country that is so divided with increasing hostility and division, don't settle for Christian. Be salt, be light. In a world where just in our country, millions are struggling with depression and anxiety, and financial fears, and, and, all, and loneliness. Be salt. Be light. To where people pay attention because you live and you love in a very different way to live and love. And every once in a while, you, you will have to speak up boldly but humbly. And you might have to confront some things and say, I, I don't think that's a great idea. Every once in a while, you're going to have to take someone to coffee and say, you know, it may be none of my business, but, but I care. And I, there's just something I want to throw your way. Be a preserver and be a light that through your love and your lifestyle, that it points the way to Jesus. Because let me just turn it around. The only way to truly understand this, the significance is to think about your own personal story. So, so if you're a Christian or Jesus follower, disciple, whatever you want to call yourself, because I know I've ruined the term Christian for you. Like, you do, like we just need to get to this series. Can we go back to that? Uh, but whatever, Christian, Jesus followers, here's, here's what I know about you. You're a follower of Jesus because somebody was salt and light in your life. You're a Jesus follower because somebody or some bodies were salt and light 
in your life. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was your grandparents, maybe it was a fellow student, maybe it was a, a neighbor or a coworker or a teacher, a friend, but someone, and someone with salt and light in their life, maybe even before you were born. But then that person, their life intersected with yours somehow. And maybe they didn't think they were, they, felt, maybe they, they did not think of themselves as a strategically placed city on a hill in your home or your school or your job or next door. They were just trying to do what they thought they should do. But, but, but you would say, I think it was providential. I think God put them in, in my life. They, they didn't feel that way. You see, some of you, you're, you're just so grateful for the men and the women that God brought into maybe your husband or your wife's life, maybe even before you were married, maybe before you met. Or for some of you, it was maybe after you were married. For some of you, you, you have kids. Some of you have adult kids, and you're so grateful for the people that God brought into their life because you prayed and prayed and prayed and said, God, they're not going to listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to somebody else. And God answered your prayer and brought somebody else into their life, and they listened. And, and that person, whoever he or she is, they don't think of themselves as salt or a city on a hill, but that's exactly what they were. Some of you are so grateful for the people that have influenced your children in a positive way. And if you were to sit down with those people, again, they don't think of themselves as a strategically placed person. But from your perspective, they were. God brought those neighbors or that individual, that coworker. I feel like God brought that person and put them in my life or put them in my loved one's life at the right time. Why? Because from our perspective as receivers, it seems so providential. But we don't think of ourselves that way. So please listen to me. Because we miss this almost every day. It is time to change your thinking. Because salt works even when you don't know it's working. Light works even when you don't know it's working. Salt always preserves. Light always shows the way. And you might say, you know, Chad, where I work, we can't really talk about religious things that much. You know, maybe you're in, in middle management or lower management. You're a receptionist, receptionist. You're an hourly employee. Uh, maybe you own the company. But if you're a Jesus follower, Jesus would say to you, okay, you, you are the salt and the light in that environment. You're the light of that world. Let your good deeds, your kindness, your work ethic be so extraordinary. Let them, your honesty shine in such a way that people begin to connect the dots between your extraordinary deeds and the fact that you are a follower of me. That when you see a chance to be proactive and bless someone or serve someone, even in the smallest way, that you do it. You go out of your way to do good for others, even if they don't deserve it. Maybe especially if they don't deserve it. You have no idea who's watching. You have no idea who's around you right now in your classroom, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, that they are watching. And you have no idea how many of them are on the verge of a breakthrough simply because of your salty life and your bright light. You may never know, you may never know the end of their story. You may never know how your interactions impacted them, but here's what you can be rest assured of. Salt always preserves and light always shows the way. It points the way forward and it just has the potential to change everything. Let's not settle for Christian. 
Let's pray. Father, I, I know for some of us, depending on how we're wired and our temperament, it can feel so terrifying to potentially open a conversation, a spiritual conversation with someone because of the fear that they'll ask a question that we don't have the answer to or they'll ask some question about the Bible that we don't know. And Father, I, I pray for every one of us, especially for those of us that wrestle with that kind of fear, that you would work with us to just push that aside, to not be afraid, and leave the results to you. And to, to love with your kind of love the way that you loved us, to love others. So that ultimately that whatever we do or say would, would point to you. And I pray, Father, for those of us that there's just stuff in our life that we need to root out because it's a distraction. And it actually derails people from, from experiencing you. I pray, God, that you would give us the strength or that you would bring people in our, our lives that have the courage to call those out in us that, so, that we, so that we can live a life that truly is what you've called us to do and that brings a light to the people around us. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.